Let us pray. Almighty and most gracious Father, draw near and make yourself known to us. Open your word up to our eyes, open it up to our ears, and open our hearts and our minds to receive this word, that we might go forth and make you known through Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we do pray. Amen. So like I said earlier today, just right at the beginning of our service, it's the second Sunday of Easter. We continue to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And as part of that, we hear about the first evening after Jesus' resurrection, as well as one week later. So in some ways, this incident between Jesus and Thomas is happening this evening, for we are on the seventh day, the eighth day after Easter. But I always kind of feel bad for Thomas. I'm actually surprised because every year on the second Sunday of Easter, we hear about Thomas. For 2,000 years nearly, he has been known as Doubting Thomas. What a wonderful nickname to have for all of history. In fact, maybe even for all of eternity, for all we know. And I'm kind of surprised that since we always hear this, that somewhere in all the liturgical revisions that have occurred in the last two or three generations, that someone didn't come up with the idea of just simply naming this Doubting Thomas Sunday. Just to really emphasize and hammer home that this is about Doubting Thomas, isn't it? Well, it is and it isn't. It's unfortunate because we all give all this emphasis on Thomas when just literally the week before, the disciples were saying almost the same things. They refused to believe anyone. They refused to accept the women's testimony that they had found the tomb empty. They refused to accept Mary Magdalene's testimony that she had seen Jesus face to face and spoken with him outside of the tomb. They refused to believe just the same as Thomas did, and yet we put all of our emphasis on Thomas being the one who doubted. But maybe it does make sense. Back in chapter 11 of the Gospel of St. John, we hear about Jesus deciding to travel on to Bethany to go visit Lazarus' grave, to go visit his family, Mary and Martha. And, and everyone knew that if Jesus went, something was going to happen. And whatever that something was, it would drive the Jewish authorities mad. And that they would ultimately begin really seeking the death of Jesus. And Thomas is a disciple who stood up and said, Well, if Jesus is going to Bethany, then let us go and die with him as well. He was ready to walk with Jesus and to die with him. He boldly proclaimed it and convinced the rest of the disciples to come with him, to travel on to Lazarus' tomb and ultimately to see the resurrection of Lazarus. One commentary called him a very gloomy and melancholy man despite his faith. After all, his first assumption is we're all going to die. We're all going to die if we go to Jerusalem. If we go to Bethany, we're going to die with Jesus. It is a little melancholy. It's a little gloomy. But he's reading the times. He knows that the work that Jesus has been doing is angering the authorities. That people are beginning more and more to see Jesus as the Messiah. And because everyone misunderstood exactly what the Messiah would do, everyone was assuming that Jesus would rise up and bring an army and overthrow the Romans and reestablish 
the kingdom of Israel as his own independent nation, separated from the Gentile world, walking forward in authority, walking forward in peace amongst themselves. But that's not the kind of freedom that Jesus was coming to bring. He was coming to bring a much deeper kind of freedom, a freedom that will overcome all other evils in this world. But nonetheless, the people misunderstood. And so the people were turned against him, and he was put to death. And he was buried in a tomb. And oh, how Thomas must have felt in that moment of seeing this man that he had trusted in, that he had believed in, murdered, put to death in the most cruel of ways there upon the cross. And to think that just prior, just a few weeks before, he had been saying, let's go die with him. And here he is fleeing and hiding in order to avoid death. Much the same as Peter. Peter had said that he would not deny Jesus, but he still did. And he went out and wept. But he came back to the disciples. He came back to the group that Jesus had gathered around him. But Thomas disappeared. In some ways, it might simply be that Peter had heard that he would turn on Jesus. Jesus had already warned him and prophesied that when the rooster crowed the second time, you will have denied me three times, Peter, but I have prayed for you that you would come to restoration, that you would not be lost. Thomas didn't have that kind of opportunity. But nonetheless, we see so much in this passage, in these two pericopes, in these two little paragraphs here about the disciples and about Thomas. We see the fullness of the gospel put before us in so many ways and what results from that gospel so that we might be encouraged. And what does this gospel tell us? What does the gospel in this passage tell us today? It reminds us that no matter our failures, no matter our disappointments in those failures, we can't let those failures become the death knell to our faith in the work of Christ. That Jesus has accomplished a great work for us. And despite the failures that the disciples underwent, all of them, including Thomas, Jesus still restores them through his work. And so for us, too, when we fail, when we give in to sin, we can't let those sins and those failures become a death knell to our faith. We can't let that sin overwhelm us. Christ's work covers our sins. So what do we do when we do sin? Do we draw back in unbelief and reject the work of Christ? Or do we boldly go to the grace? Do we boldly receive the grace of God through confession, through absolution? Do we boldly lay hold of forgiveness, knowing that we are sinners still, but also knowing that we are justified by Christ's death and resurrection? And so as we go through this passage, there's so much happening that hopefully I can say it in a way that makes sense. And so as we think about our own failures, we see the two failures that occur in this passage that I've already been talking about. The failure of the disciples to believe, but then also the failure of Thomas to believe their testimony. You see there, it says on the evening of that first day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, the disciples were there for fear of the Jews. So there, that initial Sunday evening, they're there 
hidden away because they fear the Jews because they don't believe what Jesus has done. They don't believe the work of Jesus, and so they're still in fear. They had heard of the resurrection, yet they refused to believe it. They refuse to trust that Christ has risen from the dead, though it's been confirmed by many before them. And some of them, Peter and John especially, have gone to the tomb and seen that it was empty. And they've been contemplating that. But likewise, Thomas is nowhere to be found, we find out later. In verse 24, it says that he's not with them when Jesus came. So we don't know where he was, but the disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. They'd experienced the sight and the presence of the risen Savior, and yet he clings to his unbelief. In fact, he doubles down on it and says, unless I see it with my eyes and touch him with my hands, put my hand in the mark of the nails and place my finger in those nail prints and put my hand into his side, I won't believe. I will never believe. So right there might be the key of why we hammer on Thomas so much is, the disciples never said, we have to touch him to believe it. But Thomas did. He said, I have to touch him. And so there's a failure of faith. There's a failure of belief. A failure of trust in the testimony of God's witnesses that Jesus has risen from the dead, which means that salvation has been accomplished. But quickly, things change for the disciples on that first evening. While they're hiding away and locked up, and scared of what's going on, Jesus appears to them. He just suddenly shows up in the room. The doors are locked, and yet he is there. And that shouldn't shock us, that he can appear wherever he desires. He is God, and he is man. But he is truly God. He is fully God, just as much as he is fully man. But I was reminded as I was studying this passage that, guess what else Jesus passed through without any issues? The stone that was over the tomb, the sealed up tomb, he just simply left that tomb. He didn't move the stone to get out. When the stone was rolled away, Jesus was already gone. And so in the moment of his resurrection, he left the tomb physically, bodily, left in such a way that he is in full control of his physical being, that in the person of Jesus, both divine and human, somehow, some way, he can now act in ways that we physically can't. The physical is not a limitation for Jesus anymore. He simply leaves the tomb. But even more so, what does he do immediately? And here we see the first of three shaloms that occur in our passage. I would say three pieces, but that doesn't sound as, as good. But there are three shaloms that happen here. When Jesus shows his disciples his hands, his feet, his side, he demonstrates the connection between that peace and his death and resurrection. It's more than mere physical proof that he's in the room with them. Yes, he is demonstrating a continuity between his physical self before his, before his crucifixion and after his crucifixion and resurrection. That It is the one and same Jesus. It is the same physical man standing before you because they saw him nailed to a cross. And so it would make sense that he still bears the wounds and the marks of that cross. But those wounds and the marks tell us even more about Jesus. His body bears what it took for salvation to be accomplished. Even in his glorified state, he bears those wounds for the disciples to see that peace was bought for you. Peace was accomplished for you through my death and resurrection. 
And so he shows them his wounds in order to establish that peace, in order to make them see fully what peace is for them. And with peace, there is forgiveness. For the moment he speaks peace to them, he fulfills the words that he had said throughout John 14 and 16, where he said, I will leave you with my peace. I will give you my peace. You will weep momentarily while the world rejoices, but then you will rejoice exceedingly. His peace comes upon them because he has accomplished forgiveness for them. All has been done away with because of the work of Jesus, and so he can give them this peace that he carries upon him, for he is peace itself. The Son of God has brought peace to the people. And so he shows them his sides and his hands, his feet, and then he says, peace be with you again. Two times he speaks to these disciples on that first evening of peace to them. He's not merely greeting them. He is doubling down and emphasizing what he has accomplished because they are rejoicing now in the work of the Lord. The disciples saw it and they were glad and they rejoiced because of his peace given to them. So you have those two of those three shaloms and he does the same thing for Thomas a week later. When they were all back in their room, locked up, it doesn't say they were there for fear of the Jews anymore. They were just simply there, locked in a room amongst themselves discussing the things that had been occurring. And we just assume that Jesus has probably not appeared to them since that first Sunday evening. But there in verse 26, 28, or eight days later, his disciples were inside and Thomas was with them. And Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. The third shalom that he gives to them. Of course, it's spoken to all of them, but I think it must have an extra emphasis toward Thomas, who is doubled down in his unbelief. He is doubled down in refusing to believe. And so Thomas especially probably hears Jesus saying it to him, Peace be with you. Peace to you. And once again, he stands there in their midst, demonstrating his godhood as well as his humanity. He's both God and man, all in one person able to come and go as he needs, but always carrying with him his physical body. He doesn't appear to them as merely the Spirit of God. He appears to them as the Son of God, as Jesus himself in his physical body. He is there with them. And so those three shaloms lead to a wonderful and beautiful thing occurring. The realization that there is one Lord, one faith, and one task for these disciples. We see the one Lord aspect in Thomas's reply that week later when he says, my Lord and my God. He recognizes the fullness, the deity, the divinity of Jesus himself. He recognizes the fullness of his Messiahship. For after all, right before he makes that confession, before anything has been said, Jesus looks at Thomas and demonstrates his very omniscience and says, put your fingers in my hands and see. Place your hand in my side. No one had told Jesus that Thomas had said such a radical thing, and yet Jesus knows it immediately. The only way for Jesus to know that very fact is for him to be the divine Son of God. But on top of that, just as before, as he's demonstrating his divinity to everyone, he demonstrates simultaneously his humanity by pointing to his physical body, pointing to his manhood, pointing to the physical body right there in front of them, and showing them once more the nail marks the spear mark 
showing how he had died, demonstrating it to them as the one Lord. And Thomas confesses his faith finally. As Jesus says, do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas confesses my Lord and my God. He embraces the one Lord and the one faith, expressing his full trust in the work of Jesus. And that is the gospel occurring throughout this passage. As Jesus reveals himself and shows them how salvation has been accomplished, he brings them peace and forgiveness that they might confess this faith in the one Lord, in the one God who has accomplished salvation for them. But he sets before them a single task, a task that is so singular that it encompasses all the tasks of the church. For this is the foundational task of the church in our making known the Lord Jesus in all that we do. We are to preach the forgiveness of sins. Back up in verse 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. The Son has been sent into this world as the perfect representative of the Father. Throughout the book of John, Jesus speaks over and over and over of the Father sending him into the world to do this work. He is the true apostle of the Lord. He is the full representative, for that's what that word is. To be sent by the Father is to be given all the authority of the Father. And so he comes as the representative of the Father to this world, and he dies for our sins. And so he turns and says, as the Father has sent me, and I have all the authority of the Father, I now send you, disciples. The authority the Father has, invest, has invested in me, I now place upon you in your sending. Even so, I am sending you out. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. It's a beautiful moment here. For Jesus breathes on his disciples, and in that breathing, they receive the Holy Spirit by the very command of God, by the very Word of God. It's very sacramental, isn't it? That you have the Word of God, and you have something physical, and it causes something spiritual to occur. Jesus breathes on them his physical human breath. And in that physical human breath is the very Holy Spirit as he commands them to receive the Holy Spirit. They receive the Holy Spirit in order to accomplish the work that Jesus is now going to send them out to do. But even more so to give them new life. In Genesis 2, 7, you hear of God making man out of the dust. And then God breathed into him his spirit, and gave him life, and man became a living soul. The breath of God brings life. But there was another breath that happened in that garden. There is the pestilent breath of the serpent's lies coming to Adam and Eve and saying, did God really say? As he twists God's words and uses the very physical air that God had created to create a lie that mankind fell into. That evil breath of the serpent brought death into this world by tricking and deceiving the woman and leading the man into sin. And thus, all of mankind fell into sin and was cut off from God, save for God coming over and over and over to his people, making known himself. And here on this first day of new creation, on the evening of new creation, Jesus breathes new life into his disciples. He brings a glorious and holy breath upon them 
and commands them to receive the Holy Spirit, bringing that life into them, that life that had been there once before at creation, but had been lost because of the serpent's lies. And he lays before them the task, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. That is the task of the church to go forward in. For here the church receives the Holy Spirit. The church receives the breath of God through the disciples. The church is made alive by Jesus on this first evening of new creation and given this task to go forward. To proclaim the forgiveness of sins, to extend that forgiveness of sins, to tell people that they are forgiven for the sake of Jesus, to turn from their sins now. For Jesus has died and been risen. Jesus has died and been raised from the dead. And sin has been undone. And so forgiveness can now be preached. Forgiveness can be proclaimed. We can look at one another and say, you are forgiven for the sake of Jesus. As we feel the crushing burden of our sins come upon us, as we see the disappointments and our failures before our eyes, of the things that we have done wrong, the ways that we have broken this world, the ways that we have broken relationships, we do not have to remain burdened by them, for we can confess them and turn from them. We can receive the Holy Spirit anew and know that forgiveness is proclaimed to us. As we hear this word, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. And yes, Jesus is working through his disciples to make known his forgiveness. Only God can forgive sins, but yet God chooses a bunch of people to speak that forgiveness to work through them, to proclaim, to make it known, to speak the word of forgiveness to all who come into their presence, that they might turn from their sins. And if they refuse to repent, if they refuse to turn, then that forgiveness becomes withheld. It remains there to be received, but they do not receive and partake in it until one is brought to faith. For faith is what grasps and lays hold of Jesus. Faith is what takes hold of this forgiveness. Faith says what Jesus has done is true. And if it's true, then I am changed by that because I receive the Spirit. I am brought to peace with God. We don't make peace between God and ourselves. Jesus says, I make peace with God for you. And you receive that peace from me and through me and by me. And in that peace is forgiveness. But if you think that you can make peace with God, then you lose that forgiveness. You don't lay hold of that forgiveness. You don't receive that forgiveness when you think you are the one who creates the peace. The peace is there to be received. The forgiveness is there to be received. But one must turn in faith. One must believe that what it says is true. For if there is peace and forgiveness to be received, that means that one must be living without peace. One must be living in such a state that they need forgiveness. And if one is, not, is too blind to see that they are not in a peaceful state, that they are not in a place to receive forgiveness, then that forgiveness doesn't come to them until they can see and they can cling and they can understand. And that is the work of making known forgiveness to them. That that little voice in the back of their heads would realize and remember that there is a true God and that that true God has called us before himself 
and that he brings us before himself through Jesus and forgives us when we turn in faith. And in turning in faith, we confess the very sins that we have committed. We confess the very wrongs that we have done. Because we hear of peace and forgiveness to be received. And we receive it with joy, just as those disciples did. With that one task set before them to go and proclaim forgiveness. And we become those who are blessed because we have not seen Jesus before us. But we have known the testimony. We have believed the testimony of all of the disciples, of that early church that began forming that evening, that early church that would then be sent forth on the 50th day after Easter, that would be filled with the Spirit and with tongues of fire to proclaim the bold forgiveness and the bold grace of God for all of those who are sinners, that we can turn because we know that there is peace to be received. And so here is the gospel. Jesus demonstrating that he is God and that he is man and has been risen, been raised from the dead in order to make a way for forgiveness. That he has risen from the dead because he died for our sins. Because he has risen from the dead for our forgiveness, there is peace with God for us to be received, to be lived in, and to be known. For it is all through Jesus it is all from Jesus and it is all by Jesus that we receive it. And so may you go forth knowing that there is forgiveness and peace for you, that you might confess your sins before God and hear his word of absolution that you are forgiven for the sake of Jesus. You are forgiven because Jesus has accomplished all that is necessary for you to come to the Father. And he comes to you that you might be brought to the Father. And so receive this Jesus, receive him and be renewed over and over into this peace and this forgiveness that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.